Coming up today, Matt dissects China's coronavirus strategy, Amit asks why games are getting shorter, and we discuss the security faux pas you're probably making. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, Vicky Turk, and joining me this week are Amit Katwala. Hello. And Matt Reynolds. Hello. This was the week when Sony released its much-anticipated latest console, the PlayStation 5, following the recent release of the Xbox Series X. Wired's reviewer Matt Cannon says both consoles are brilliant, giving both 9 out of 10, but gives the PlayStation a slight edge over its rival. Now all that's needed is more new games. This was also the week when we got more exciting news about potential COVID-19 vaccines. Results from the pharmaceutical firm Moderna found that the vaccine had a 94.5% efficacy at preventing COVID-19 symptoms. And we also got more data from that uh, Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, which has concluded its phase three studies, and we found that it has a 95% efficacy. And finally, this was the week when the Vatican launched an internal investigation after the Pope's Instagram account, which has 7.4 million followers, liked a photo of a Brazilian model. The account is apparently managed by a team of employees and not the Pope himself. Not the first time we've seen a social media faux pas like that, is it? No, I, I do like the idea of the Pope kind of scrolling scrolling through Instagram on his uh, smartphone accidentally hitting like on something and then sort of sparking a diplomatic incident. Beware fat fingers, yeah. Interesting facts. Matt Reynolds, what have you got for us this week? So this week I learned that Kinder Surprise eggs, so the chocolate eggs that contain a plastic toy inside, I'm sure we're all familiar with in the UK, have long been illegal in the US because of a law that bans sweets with non-food objects inside them. But this ban has led to people smuggling around 60,000 Kinder Surprise eggs each year into the US from Canada and Mexico. Although people in the US will be pleased to hear and probably already know that Kinder now sells a version of the egg in the United States as the toy and the chocolate separate from each other. So I imagine that black Kinder Egg market has probably declined somewhat. Interesting stuff. Amit, what have you got for us? I learned that the world's tallest waterfall is technically underwater. The Denmark Strait Cataract is in the Atlantic Ocean between Greenland and Iceland and is formed by the different density of water caused by temperature differences. The colder, denser water flows underneath the warmer water as they meet, forming a 3,500 metre undersea waterfall. That's more than three times higher than Angel Falls, which is the world's highest above ground waterfall. So where does the waterfall start? Um, I, I guess at the, you kind of have these two streams of warm and cold water, so I guess it kind of starts three and a half thousand metres above the ocean floor and then just kind of falls down from there. Weird. I wonder if you can you like see it like other pictures of it or is it like uh, invisible? Uh, that's a really good question. I think you probably can see it if you know what you're looking for in the sense that like it will be carrying particles with it or it might be slightly different colour reflectivity because of the different temperature or density. So can I just say, is this water going over any rocks before it falls down? Are you saying that that's what makes it a waterfall? 
Well, I'm saying that if that isn't the case, I understand that the water is falling, but then couldn't just rain be a waterfall because that's coming from the sky and falling down? I feel like it needs to travel over rocks and then go down <laughs> for it to be a waterfall. I don't think rain counts as a waterfall. I mean, I'm not a meteorologist, but <laughs> I will put the, I'll put I'll put your questions to the the waterfall classification board and let you know next week. Thank you. Yeah, solid definition of a waterfall is needed. Uh, let us know if you've got one, podcast.wired.co.uk. Um, I've got a good fact this week, quite an, an, an inspiring fact, actually, I think. Um, so in 2019, last year, Oslo, the capital of Norway, recorded zero pedestrian or cyclist deaths, not a single one. So Oslo is on a mission to reach Vision Zero, which means zero road deaths at all. In 2019, uh, a traffic fatality involving a driver um, prevented it from from reaching actual Vision Zero. Um, But, you know, it's obviously well on the way. Uh, So how have they done it? They've basically designed the city um, to to make road traffic accidents less likely. So this involves pedestrianised zones, removing car parking spaces in the city centre to encourage use of public transport and building more bike lanes and footpaths. Quite obvious stuff, um, but nice to see that it can work. Some people were worried that making the city centre harder to access by car might negatively affect local business, but they found that footfall actually increased slightly after the changes. I suppose because people are sort of walking around next to shops, maybe they're more likely to dip in than if they were driving past. We, that, that's kind of similar to what we've seen in the UK with these like low traffic neighbourhoods, which have been pretty controversial for a lot of reasons. But actually what I think local businesses on those streets have seen is that actually people feel more comfortable kind of just having a stroll. It's much more pleasant to have a stroll down certain streets uh, with shops on them when there's no traffic. And it has kind of helped from that point of view with all the kind of COVID stuff, particularly in the summer when restaurants were able to kind of put their cafe tables outside obviously there are problems with low traffic neighborhoods as well which which have been kind of covered in the news about whether they're fair to everyone but it's just an interesting side effect that yeah maybe we don't actually need cars to have a thriving kind of urban environment yeah it's interesting seeing all the changes being made in the wake of coronavirus and how that's affecting behavior uh, let's know if you've seen any in, anything interesting near you maybe you live in a low traffic area maybe you like it maybe you don't podcast at wired.co.uk we'd love to hear about your cities. Wired Live is taking place next week. Join us virtually on November 24th for three virtual episodes that feature some of the most exciting, inventive and creative individuals changing the world for good. This year's speakers include Demis Hassabis, CEO and co-founder of DeepMind, Lynn Owens, the Director General of the National Crime Agency, and Peggy Johnson, the CEO of Magic Leap. And of course, we'll be there too. Tickets this year are starting at the low, low price of £20 plus VAT. To find out more and buy tickets, visit wired.uk slash wired dash live. That URL again, Amit, is? It's wired.uk forward slash wired dash live. We look forward to seeing you there. Our first main story this week is on, of course, the theme of the year, coronavirus. Matt, you've been taking a deeper look into China's approach to COVID and how they've managed to basically get a hold on it. Yeah, exactly. So obviously, um, we know that coronavirus got started in the in the Chinese city of, of Wuhan, Um but since then, it's become a huge global story. And a lot of the focus really has moved away from China onto other parts of the world that have been really, really struggling with coronavirus, as we're all, you know, very familiar with. But the remarkable story in China, really, is that the place where this pandemic got started has been one of the world's 
big coronavirus success stories. So just some numbers on this. So since mid-March, China has reported a really, really low number of daily COVID-19 cases. So basically, you know, there was the initial outbreak in Wuhan at the new year. It kind of seeded some other epidemics elsewhere in China. Really, they were more or less managed by by mid-March. So at their peak after that mid-March, cases in China have only really hit a maximum of 200 per day around the beginning of August, but generally they've been well below 100 cases per day, often quite a lot lower, which is really quite astonishing for a country of nearly 1.4 billion people. So China obviously didn't do a lot of things right at the start of the pandemic and and kind of allowed it to spread quite far before really kind of getting a handle on it. But what are they doing right now? How have they been able to kind of turn things around? Yeah, so... The reason why I wanted to bring this this story on and why we're talking about it now is that I think we've had a lot of attention about how China's been using technology. We've talked about uh, mobile tracking apps. We've talked about traffic light systems, um, you know, people showing where they've been before. But perhaps what hasn't been talked about much is this real monumental human effort um, across all levels of um, society. And what our writer, Lavender Owl, spoke to, uh, she spoke to some of the people that have really been involved in these efforts. And the way that uh, Chinese health authorities talk about this is a policy of infected until proven healthy. So this idea that if you come into the country uh, from somewhere else, we're going to treat you as if you were infected and make sure you're not infected before we re- you know, release you uh, into the rest of the country. So we're really kind of thinking about those kind of specific examples here. So uh, you know, how that really works is that Chinese nationals and foreign workers, you know, they fly in from countries every day. Obviously, China is a huge trade and manufacturing hub. Some of them are carrying cases of COVID-19. And these imported cases in the country can often number in the double digits. So quite often, there are not many uh, cases of local transmission, but there are imported cases. Now, what's been happening is the aviation authorities have been throttling the number of flights, especially from countries that are at higher risk, and that people returning from countries like like the UK, need to present a negative uh, test, a nucleic acid test and an antibody test before boarding a plane. And then they're tested again upon arrival. So they're doubly making sure that these people don't have COVID when they arrive. And that's really when things start. That's, that's only the beginning of the process. So what happens after that? Once after you've arrived, if, I'm, if I was going to China, what, what would happen next? Yeah, so Lavender used the example of people flying into Shanghai. So imagine you're, you've just taken a plane and you've gone from London Heathrow to Shanghai. What would happen is when you arrive, you'll have three people assigned to you. So a doctor, a policeman and a neighbourhood committee member. Now, for all new arrivals, quarantine is mandatory, either at home if you're a Chinese national or in a hotel. And the quarantine people are not allowed to venture outside at all. So people that go and... Uh, choose to quarantine at home will find a device that's mounted on their front door and basically what that does it detects i guess it's a little bit like a door alarm really um it detects whenever that door is opened and then the doctor and the party committee member that's been assigned to you will receive an alert and they'll cut call and they'll say you know why are you uh, why are you opening the door and, and someone that was involved in this one of the uh, uh doctors assigned to the uh, uh a residential patrol said you know the reason we do that is because we can't stand outside the door the whole time and one time they saw that someone had left the compound to walk uh, around outside and after that they decided let's put these devices on every single door so that really just shows you the kind of monumental efforts that people are going to if they realize well actually 
people are quarantined, they're walking around outside, they're meant to be quarantined, they're walking around outside, well, we'll put something on the door to make sure they stay inside. Um, and actually, what's quite remarkable is we're talking about quarantining people. We're not talking about people that have actually tested positive. So these are just people who are, as I said, being treated as infected and less proven healthy. So these doctors, they visit every single day to take the person's temperature and ask about their health. They obviously wear uh, hazmat suits and they disinfect them before, as they go to, uh, from flat to flat. In all, each visit takes about half an hour. Um, and... You know, the reason for this is, is just to provide, you know, as much support so these people just don't have to go outside. So what happens is that party committee members are responsible for their daily needs. So they collect uh, the people quarantining, collect their rubbish. They bring them food deliveries uh, if they order them. And then on the 12th day of their quarantine, the doctors administer a nucleic acid test, which is just, you know, a slightly different version of a um, a coronavirus test. If they test positive, they notify the health commission and they're sent to hospital for supervision. If they're negative, they, you know, as the doctor described it, they become normal and they're allowed to integrate into society. It's only 12 days after arriving and spending all of that time within their hotel room or flat. Um, what kind of impact is this having on the people that are involved? Obviously, this is kind of quite a brutal quarantine when you can't even go out for a walk or anything like that. Yeah, I mean... I think, you know, on a really basic level, you know, the impact is pretty, pretty severe because we're talking about, you know, so many humans need to get involved in this. I mean, I think if you put that into contrast with the UK approach, which obviously, if you're returning from certain countries, you are required to quarantine for, I think it's uh, two weeks. But often that quarantine is not enforced. It's not like you have a you know, member of the police force turning up on your house. Um, whereas here in China, they've said, well, these are the rules and this is what we're going to do uh, to make sure you stick to them. So Lavender also spoke to a, another person called Chao Ying, uh, who worked in Shanghai's Motel 168, which is another place where quarantining travellers stayed. So, um, you know, since many doctors have been sent to Wuhan or hadn't returned to Shanghai from their hometowns uh, early on in the pandemic, uh, Chow and another doctor were looking after anything from 20 to 70 people altogether. So they were administering tests, they were recording their temperatures, uh, they were even doing stuff like sorting through their mail, right? These are people that have still got lives, they maybe have businesses, they've got, you know, they've got stuff to do. Um, in other cities, uh, uh, Chow said that you know she heard about doctors becoming the maintenance staff and the hotel staff too. So at the very beginning of, of the epidemic, this doctor was on call 24 hours a day and basically slept in the hotel for two week stints at a time. Um, at, you know, at some time she was keeping a hazmat suit on for six hours straight because they only had uh, two suits between the doctors. So they, they, you know, they couldn't swap. They couldn't um, they didn't have time to disinfect them. Now things are much, much easier, um, I think, probably because, you know, the, the rate of new infections has slowed down. So there's less, you know, there's probably you know, a little bit less you know, worry about that. Um, so they've got rotors and now she alternates between a hospital you know, and, a, and a quarantine hotel. The hotel uh, also now has a psychiatrist on call because they had you know, lots of issues of people that would come in. And apparently this hotel is not necessarily the most luxurious place to stay. People would come in. They would say, I don't feel safe here. You know, I don't want to quarantine here. Um, so actually, there's much more kind of support. And uh, there's an on-call psychiatrist that can do video calls with people or even an in-person call in a, in a hazmat suit if necessary, if they're suffering from more serious issues. So over time, this kind of support has built up around these people to really you know, ensure they can quarantine in a way that is as healthy as possible. So that's for everyone who 
comes into China and has to quarantine regardless of whether they um, test positive or not. In fact, presumably these are people who, who they think, you know, haven't tested positive yet. Well, what about if you do? What if you do have COVID? Yeah, I mean, exactly. That's the kind of remarkable thing, thing, Vicky. We're talking about people who we just don't know if they have COVID-19. I mean, statistically, most of them won't. The vast majority of those people won't. Uh, but that's just how cautious the Chinese authorities are being. Of course, China is also doing a bunch of work testing for people that, uh, you know, to find out who does have uh, the virus. So China is testing about 3.8 million samples a day. That's the, you know, the official government figures. Um, initially, the Chinese policy was that patients with uh, mild symptoms were allowed to quarantine at home. But that actually changed fairly early on in the pandemic when they found that people with mild symptoms were still infecting their family members. So instead, uh, the government policy became to uh, build these shelter hospitals that are called Fangtang, um, which separate them from their families. So in essence, these are you know, really large conventions centres with just rows of beds. I mean, they look like, I don't know, if you see a, um, uh, you know, a, a film that has a 1950s orphanage where you just get these big rooms and they're just crammed with kind of metal beds and they're very simple. It, you know, it looks a bit like that. So just row upon row of beds where people stay into dorms that can fit maybe up to 600 people, sometimes more. Um, and so even later on, um, asymptomatic, uh, asymptomatic cases had the same treatment and patients can only leave these hospitals i mean really they don't require much medical attention so it's really just a place for them to stay but patients can only leave these hospitals after they tested negative twice and then they stayed in quarantine wards for another two weeks so you know as you can see even for asymptomatic people um where unless you tested them you wouldn't necessarily know they had covid19 um you know super super cautious in terms of keeping them separated from the main population a lot's been kind of made of the the use of technology by various countries like South Korea has been been uh, kind of talked up for the way that it's used kind of data to help track people. This seems like it's kind of a mixture of both technology and also like quite a lot of kind of manpower and just like having a vast amount of like human resources, people to physically be around and physically keep an eye on things. Yeah, and I think that's the lesson from all of this. If the, if there is anything to draw, it's that, you know, I think, like you said, people kind of point to uh, technology and they say, OK, well, we need an app or we need, um, you know, an alert system. And that's kind of what solves it. But this really shows that those systems only really work in, in concert with these really high effort on the ground, um, uh, you know, quarantine efforts, really. Um, so, it's true that technology has been used to aid contact tracing. So, for example, um, in February, people in China received a text message that was basically saying they can authorise telecom, telecoms operators to access the provinces and cities they've been to in the past 15 or 30 days. I think you've probably seen that traffic light system where it shows whether people have been to a, a, a at-risk area. Actually, that tends to rely on data that just people input themselves. So it's not like that. It's actually automated gen- you know, automated. Um, uh, you know, generated automatically, sorry, um, you know, people are actually putting this information in themselves. So it's, it's a little bit more lo-fi than you'd expect. Um, there was a case in a market called Synthadai, um, where authorities use signals uh, at local uh, mobile stations run by mobile phone carriers. And they basically sent text messages to people that passed within a few kilometres of the market, um, including people who have been sitting on the metro or driving by. So there have been cases when technology has been used to 
um, you know, spark off this contact tracing um, or to really reinforce these efforts. But it's not the only thing that's been going on. And whenever a case was discovered, that would start the really uh, human intensive contact tracing effort. So local disease control units would interview patients, they'd track down close contacts and close contacts of those close contacts. They'd test them and require them to isolate. They'd do things like watching footage from local surveillance cameras around places a patient might have been uh, or places they'd visited or people they'd visited to see who they'd been in close contact with. And I think, you know, the the real overarching theme of this and the whole theme behind this um, infected until proven healthy goal is that the only uh, end target is total elimination. So this really had an impact on the people involved. So officials were fired for uh, you know, perceived dereliction of duty, or they were promoted for successfully controlling the virus. There's a really big responsibility on local party committees, and it was seen as their core responsibility to you know ensure people were getting masks uh, sent out. There was one video um, where there was a party official doing a kind of tour, and everyone was shouting, "You know, you're fake, you're fake," because they'd only delivered food that day to make it seem better. So you know, it was you know really clear that they're putting this big effort into you know making people feel supported and making sure they're doing everything they can but of course you know there's been a huge cost there's one figure in the article that says that 25 million migrant workers might be out of a job and there's no furlough scheme for those workers because you know so many places shut down so i think it's worth noting that you know this all comes at a kind of huge um personal cost but it does show you the type of things that can be done if you uh you know mobilize an entire population even in such a huge country that you can get cases down to a surprisingly low level Yeah, I mean, I guess this demonstrates a couple of things, really. Firstly, just how difficult it is to really eliminate the virus at this stage, but also the potential human cost of some of the measures taken to do so. Yeah, exactly. And I I think that's the point that actually, you know, especially when you don't have these support systems in places with the migrant workers, that this comes at a great, you know, cost to them. But that if you do want to motivate all these people and you really incentivize people to get on top of contact tracing, that it, that it can be done. Obviously, the question is, is, you know, could you do that in a country like the UK? I mean, could you have people going around every home? Could you, you know, keep people in, you know, in quarantine if you were providing them with food, if you, you know, made it safe for them? And I think that's really the kind of question. It shows that if you put everything, all your resources into stopping the virus, you can do that, even in a surprisingly, you know, even in a huge country, but that it does require people to, uh, you know, take these rules super seriously and prepare to have their, you know, liberties kind of curtailed for that. And that's obviously something that in the UK we're really struggling with right we see that people struggle to isolate even when it's not being enforced so how would people react if we did enforce it in that way and i think that you know that's really the kind of problem that a lot of um you know democracies have been facing to be honest on to our next story of the week um something a bit more light perhaps something that people can be entertaining themselves with in lockdown amit we've got the two big releases of the games consoles this week the playstation 5 and the xbox series x but you've been finding out that games are maybe going to be getting shorter tell us about this yeah that's right vicky yeah so um yeah as you said the the kind of new consoles arrived this week and there's been kind of 
a huge amount of excitement I think particularly because people are kind of trapped at home and don't really have a lot to do kind of watch everything on Netflix so the launch of kind of a new PlayStation a new Xbox uh, is it's quite a big deal in the gaming world and they come with uh, or the PlayStation at least has come with a raft of kind of new launch titles uh, and exclusives um, these consoles kind of are, are massively powerful and you know they offer uh, developers the ability to really pack a lot more into their games but well we've seen in, in other parts of culture we've seen kind of blockbuster movies getting longer and longer these kind of new AAA titles actually seem to be getting shorter than before so what do you actually mean by this like the games are just are getting like literally smaller like they take less time to play yeah so basically so for the last kind of decade basically since the playstation uh three and four were kind of uh you know in the ascendancy for the last 10 years or more the trend has been to make these kind of really big open world games where players can spend hundreds of hours so we're talking about games like grand theft auto or red red redemption these huge kind of sandbox games where there's just you could spend a year of your life kind of in this world and you would never run out of stuff to do but the new consoles seem to be launching with much shorter titles. So in terms of the physical number of hours that it takes you to play through like a main story mode in, in a game, like um, in, in a game is getting shorter. So this is particularly noticeable on the PlayStation 5, where the standout title um, Spider-Man Miles Morales is uh, between 12 and 20 hours long, which is relatively short for a blockbuster game. They often, you know, uh, break through 80 or 100 hours. Uh, Sackboy, a big adventure, is similarly short, as is Godfall, another launch title, which has only got about 15 hours of play in its campaign mode. This is really, really interesting because I think I've seen this myself with the games that I buy and think I like and the games that I actually play all the way through. You know, um, it took me about four years to, to finish Grand Theft Auto V um, and it was a little bit of a chore by the end of it. And the same with Red Dead Redemption 2. I was like, this is great, but also I, I probably only got... 15 hours 20 hours through that game it, it just felt too vast and overwhelming and that because i didn't have the time to sink into the whole thing what was the point whereas games like um you know the uh, the you know marvel spider-man you know really good kind of blasted through that um so is this about you know playing habits and what people want to play or is this to do with the studios you know where where is this push coming from yeah, I think it's it's an interesting it's an interesting balance. I think I think you're right, Matt. As well, like I I can't remember the last time I actually completed a video game. Like it it will have been what Gears of War three or something about ten years ago. Because they they are so long and like it's really hard to kind of carve out enough time to like you know of an evening, particularly if you live with someone else who isn't necessarily a gamer. Like it's really hard to kind of carve out hours of time to like play through campaign mode or whatever. So you just end up not finishing a lot of games. Um, so as you say like a lot a lot a lot of what ends up happening is that people end up buying the game and then not really finishing it and they just end up with this kind of ever increasing pile of like unfinished games or games that they've barely even dipped into before being distracted by the next big release um and, you know developers can track this through data you know when you get trophies and achievements on on games for, for getting through particular stages you can they can see how rare it is for people to actually complete the games even shorter games and that, that's been the case for years developers have been kind of trying to strike a balance between providing enough content to keep the really hardcore fans happy. So they've got to kind of produce these long games for the 1% of people that do actually play them all the way through, but also kind of attracting people who may only play it for like 10, 10 or 20 hours uh, or even less. And it's about kind of appealing to both these kind of markets, but that's got a real cost attached. So, you know, developers, while they're kind of building these ridiculously detailed worlds and, you know, adding kind of nuanced touches that only a few people will ever experience they, they often end up kind of burning themselves out there's this concept called crunch which is like this 
this crunch time that developers have, you know, in the, in the months leading up to a game release where they just work ridiculous hours and it's really kind of causing a lot of people in the industry to burn out. Even though most people won't play these games to the end, won't people feel perhaps a bit ripped off if, you know, they're getting less playtime for their money? Surely that's like one of the things that you can help use to justify buying a new game. You're like, well, it'll keep me busy for months, maybe even years. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons that games have been increasing in length because, you know, the price the price of a new game has been kind of going up quite a lot, right? Like, you know, that, you know when we were younger, it was maybe like £30, now it's more like £60. Um, and gamers may still view a short kind of run time as like a negative thing, even if they don't ever actually reach the end of the game. They, they might think, oh, well, it's only 20 hours of play. Is it really worth that much of my money? Um, even the new Spider-Man game, which which is really, really excellent, according to our reviewer, has been dismissed as an expansion or kind of glorified downloadable content because it is so short. Uh, it's all about perceived value. Yeah, if someone's going to spend that much on something, they want to make sure it's going to entertain them for a long period. But what's also changing, as well as the games getting short, they're kind of a reflection of the way the business model of the whole industry is changing. So we're kind of moving away from a model where developers make money from individual sales or platforms make money from individual sales, and we're moving towards a model where it's more of a subscription. So you might pay like £10 a month for your Game Pass or Google Stadia subscription or PlayStation Now. So for developers using something like Game Pass, um, it's not so much about the length of the games, it's about the variety and, and the number of different games that you can play. So for AAA developers, there's an opportunity to release kind of shorter, high-quality games without needing to kind of pour all the resources into to making like a 100-hour epic. So it's a bit like what we've seen with Netflix, which produces kind of lots of shorter series instead of the kind of longer 22-episode series that we used to see on like network television. It's that same kind of deal. It's more variety, but kind of smaller, shorter bites. It's interesting as well, because I guess a lot of popular games in recent years have taken a very different approach. Obviously, you do have those massive open worlds that you can explore for ages, but some of the real successes we've seen with like Fortnite um, and other, I mean the battle royale mode in general it's very much about having a short game repeating essentially the same thing over and over and people love it right yeah i think actually what you're right Vicky, the breakout games that, that that seem to kind of go beyond the sort of hardcore you know gamers in inverted commas um tend to be those games that you are much easier to pick up and play uh and it's partly because yeah you can just kind of pick them up 15 minutes and then jump out again it's partly because because they're shorter it makes them easier to like play across platforms so more people can get involved and you kind of have this bigger community of players you know if you're if it's a hundred hour game and you have to play through the whole story mode to be at the same level as everyone else that's playing online then it makes it makes it a really kind of high barrier to entry whereas if you can just kind of jump right in and there's not really kind of a story mode to speak of and it's just kind of a, a short experience that you can play on any platform then it's much much easier and much more accessible for a lot more people yeah, I think I'm probably a bit like Matt Reynolds. I, I Even with games that I really like, like Zelda Breath of the Wild, I kind of reach a point where I've just sort of had enough. You know, the, the there's even though the game's really interesting, there's there's not much novelty anymore and I, I might get distracted by something new and just never end up going back to it. What about you, Emmett? Are, are you planning on getting either of the new consoles? Are you looking forward to any games in particular? Yeah, I actually have um, I have an Xbox uh, Series X, um, courtesy of the review console that they sent <laughs> they sent us ahead of launch. So um, yeah, I've been trying that out over the last few weeks. Um, it's great. I mean, I think I prefer the look of the PlayStation Five. To be honest, it's got a bit more innovation in it. It's got those kind of haptic controllers and like resistant 
triggers and things like that, whereas the Xbox is very much like the old Xbox, but more powerful. Um, and I don't have a 4K TV, so a lot of the kind of advantages and Im- imagery and stuff are, are completely lost on me. At the risk of making a really unsophisticated point, I think I'm probably going to get a, a PlayStation 5, but I really don't like the fact that it, it's curvy on top, which means that I can't put my router on top of it and then slide it under the TV, which is what I used to do with my PlayStation 4. I don't really want to look at a console. I don't really care if it looks nice. I kind of want to tuck it away and, and put it out of sight. So that's, that's one thing that's holding me back. Plus, as far as I understand, you can't really get them on Amazon at the moment. So um, you know, I might be waiting a little bit, little while. Yeah, they've definitely proved popular to to the surprise of about no one, I think. I'm probably with you, actually, Matt. I think, you know, I'm not the kind of person that's going to use a a games console as a design feature in my home. Um, And I actually prefer the kind of black box look, just, you know, something I can kind of put away nicely in the cupboard. Um, The PlayStation obviously is, you know, I guess it's more inventive in in the way it looks. It's got that kind of white and silver um, facade on it. Um, But I guess, you know... (laughs) Based on our review of Matt Cameron's uh, insights, it, that kind of is what it comes down to, right? Like the two are both very good consoles that do pretty much the same thing. They've got about the same performance. It basically comes down to how they look. It, it, I mean, partly, yes, it also comes down to the games to a certain extent where I think the PlayStation probably has the edge. So one of the things I've been a little bit disappointed with with the Xbox is, you know, I kind of got access to it and I was like, great, like where are all these next-gen games that I can play on this new amazing powerful machine that I've got in my living room? And that on the Xbox, there aren't any next-gen exclusives. So everything that's on there is also available on the Xbox One. And it's like, for, for now, that will change over the, you know, the next year or so. But uh, it, it's very much kind of an incremental step forward. Uh, it's a bit like, you know, you've just got a slightly faster PC versus, you know, a, a new type of thing. And I think that, that that reflects Microsoft's general approach to games consoles, but it's a little bit less uh, exciting from a consumer point of view. Whereas I think with the PlayStation 5, there's a real sense that um, it's kind of a, a, a paradigm shift or, you know, you're able to do things that you couldn't do before, although you do have to move your router. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, historically consoles have been really tied into the idea of launching with exclusive titles. I wonder if that's perhaps shifting a bit now maybe you know we're moving away from that model slightly yeah it's, it's i think it's partly because of um, and we've, we've seen you've talked about kind of google stadia and services like that before these kind of cloud computing services that there's been some chat in the industry about whether this is going to be the kind of last console generation before all that kind of hard heavy lifting of processing kind of goes off goes online and people start kind of doing cloud gaming cloud computing and where it doesn't really matter how much processing power is in the device that's actually physically in your living room as long as it's got a good internet connection so you know this may be the kind of start of that it, it's it also reflects i think the this the subscription model that games uh that that um, microsoft are trying to and sony are trying to move towards where they want to make money from kind of subscriptions because it's more regular income they want you to subscribe to you know a, a 15 pound um pass and you get access to all these games and you can play them on any device regardless of you know what device it is and that's one thing that xbox has got going for it is that you know you can play the games that you buy on your pc if you have a pc on on, on any any level of xbox the recent ones or, and all these different uh things it's much more kind of an interconnected uh gaming as a service i guess is what you call it rather than you buy this product and that's standalone 
Let us know what you make of the new consoles. Are you planning to get one? Have you got one? Are there any games coming up that you're particularly looking forward to? What do you think about games getting shorter? Does that bother you? Are you a completist? Or are you uh, delighted to hear that you're not going to have to pour quite so much free time into getting to those final levels? Podcast at wired.co.uk is the usual address. Our third story this week is about password security, account security. And, you know, a rare occasion where I'm bringing this on instead of Matt Burgess. So I have a personal question for you guys. Do you share any of your online accounts with your partner? Do they know your login details to anything? So... The answer is, of course, the, the first answer is that I've taken Matt Burgess' advice and I use a password manager. So if I am sharing any passwords, get onto that in a sec, uh, they're not shared across different accounts. I think I'm doing something wrong and something right. But the answer is, yeah, I do share some account details. I think I share like Netflix and maybe a Sky login and Amazon Prime is occasionally handy. One thing that came up recently is because I've got this password manager. I think I'm being clever, um, you know, with the, uh, you know, putting the you know, more secure password on it. Actually, because we share my Netflix password with my girlfriend's grandparents, they got in touch saying, I can't put the password in. It's too complicated. Can you change it to something easier? Which I guess demonstrates one of these perils of password sharing is that actually sometimes you need to make them easier to make them easier to share. So that's probably not, I hope Matt Burgess isn't going to listen to this. It's good he's not on this week because uh, I'll probably violate violate one of the major principles of online security so you're sharing not only with your partner but with your partner's grandparents yeah i mean yeah it, get, it gets wider who knows who they're sharing with it could go on forever <laughs> Amit, how about you yeah our uh, i mean we just have like i don't i don't even think of it as like my netflix account anymore it's just like the netflix account and like my, my wife uses it my mum uses it uh i had to like i had to kick off the other day because so many people were using it that I couldn't use it <laughs> so that, I had to actually change the password because there were like like four simultaneous people that weren't me using my Netflix account um so yeah Netflix Spotify passwords were all kind of shared um I I don't uh use a password manager as Matt Burgess recommends instead I just write my passwords on post-it notes and stick them all all over the house to to, to stress him out mainly collective gasp here on the podcast <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, this demonstrates exactly the story that I'm talking about, which is all about how romantic relationships just don't work with our current security infrastructure and vice versa. So when it comes to security, you know, probably everyone listening to this podcast knows the major best practices, you know, use a strong password, don't reuse passwords, maybe use a, a password manager or even set up two-factor authentication. And we all know that you should never, ever, ever share your passwords with someone else and yet many of us do so jason hong a professor at carnegie mellon university's human computer interaction institute says it's very common to see account sharing especially in the context of a romantic relationship and he says if you're not sharing accounts then really you are the oddball based on research they've done with people so his research group is focused on what's called social cybersecurity, which basically takes real world human behavior as a starting point for security practices. And he says that the problem is in cybersecurity today, people often assume that we operate as kind of individual rational actors, but that's simply not the reality. And the result can be a bit of a security mess. I think one of the reasons that I don't really mind sharing my, I don't, I don't really feel like sharing my Spotify account is a... Um 
problem or my Netflix account is that it doesn't really matter to me if someone else logs into my Netflix account. It doesn't feel like a cybersecurity risk. It might mess up my algorithm recommendations and stuff like that, but it doesn't um, affect me. But are people sharing kind of serious accounts? Are they sharing like online banking details and things like that as well? So there's definitely a hierarchy here, Amit, you're right. You know, there's some accounts that you want to keep much more secure than others um, because of, you know, the potential consequences of them getting into the wrong hands. So based on some work that Hong and colleagues have done, uh, they found that entertainment accounts are most commonly shared. So that's yet things like Netflix and Spotify. Uh, But they did also find that things like shopping accounts, so Amazon, were often shared. um, And plenty of people did share, you know, online banking accounts, uh, social media logins, uh, you know, it's, 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 they're less usual, but far from uncommon. And there's, there's two main reasons that people give for doing this. One is convenience. So sometimes it's simply easier to share one account than have two. Sometimes it's cheaper, especially if it's a subscription. Um, and, you know, if you're handling certain tasks together, especially if you're cohabiting, if you're living together, um, then you might just think it's easier for both people to have access uh, some, sometimes people do it to track household spending too, if they share their finances, maybe they've just got one shopping account so that they can kind of see what's coming in and out. Um, and sometimes people do set them up specifically to use together. And sometimes they just, you know, kind of let their partner take over theirs. But the other reason that people do this is more emotional. And I guess this is getting to that kind of human aspect of social security. It's basically a sign of trust. So just like you might trust someone with a spare key to your flat at some point in the relationship. Maybe you decide at some point that, you know, you trust them to have a certain amount of access to your digital world. Um, And in one of Hong's studies, the biggest factor that coincided with more account sharing was the stage of the relationship. So basically, you know, the more serious the relationship is, the more likely it is that someone would be sharing their accounts or would be sharing more accounts. I'm also interested to know whether the more advanced browsers have also impacted this, because obviously now most browsers have password managers embedded and when you put in a new password it will say do you want to remember this password as well so rather than asking the person again and again you could just save it as an alternative password it kind of browsers encourage you to do that in a way they didn't before so obviously this from a from a relationship point of view i think it would be pretty mean if i was saying no it's my netflix account you can't have my password go away so i think it's bad from a relationship perspective not to share your passwords but what are the consequences from a security point of view So obviously it's not good for security Um, and it does, you know, it does depend a bit on the account. So actually Netflix um, and Spotify and a few other services are outliers in that they have actually kind of come up with a bit of a solution to this, which is the having different profiles on one account. Um, You know, it's still one person's account, but you can have um, sort of different users having profiles under that. So, you know, it's it's sort of a bit more designed for that, uh, which is good. Uh, but, you know, obviously account sharing in general is is not the best thing for your security because basically if you share an account, you're relying on the other person's security practices. So even if your security is great, you know, maybe you've chosen a really strong password or something, um, you're really happy with it. As soon as someone else has the details, it's an obvious risk, you know, if they kind of, aren't particularly uh, careful about keeping those safe um, then you know you're you're kind of at the mercy of the weakest link <laughs> in that situation and you might also not quite realize how much access you've given someone so if someone can access your phone for example maybe you, they know your phone pin 
they may potentially have access to all of the accounts that you're logged into there, right? And you're, you kind of trust them not to access things you don't want them to, maybe your, your email or your social media accounts, but they potentially could. Um, and if your own security isn't great, then the risk is even higher. So an obvious example of this is if you reuse passwords, which of course you should never do. If you've given someone the credentials to what you think is just an inconsequential account uh, that they can't really do anything with, if you've then actually used the same password for something more important, they might actually be able to get access to that too. Or again, if you know that password is um, stolen by a bad actor, they could then try and reuse it on other accounts, which we see happening a lot, right? People's details are shared and sold. And then what um, hackers will do is essentially just try and use those details across different services. Um, and often because people do reuse passwords, it can work. I mean, I guess the issue is like, I, I kind of trust the people that have shared my Netflix password as not what password with not to try and like crack into my, my online banking. And I'm sure Matt doesn't think his grandparents are sort of going to gonna log into his, his online banking and sort of um, scam him or anything like that. So surely if you if you trust the person you're sharing with, it, it shouldn't be an issue. I mean, first off, we should mention that obviously not all relationships are good and healthy in the context of an abusive relationship account sharing can feed into a broader pattern of kind of coercive and controlling behavior where abusers use digital monitoring and surveillance against their victims. So no one should ever feel pressured to share private information in the first place. You know, if you're if someone's telling you, oh, you know, if you love me, you would share this or um, we're in a relationship, so you have to share it. That's obviously probably not a good situation and you shouldn't feel pressure to do so and, you know, seek help if you're, you, you think you're in that kind of situation. But even if you are happy and healthy in your relationship and things are great, it, it can still get tricky. And, and one of the reasons is, as I said earlier, that a lot of accounts just aren't designed for more than one person. This is assumption that one account equals one user. And a lot of security practices also make this assumption. So if you take the example of two-factor security where you use a kind of secondary authentication process when you log in. Uh, usually it's sort of a text sent to a phone with a code that you enter as sort of a second password. Say your spouse logs into your account because they've got your password because you gave it to them. They then reach the two-factor page, but the authentication text goes to your phone because you set it up. Then they won't be able to log in because they don't have the code. And you might think that someone's trying to hack you because you've suddenly got this random authentication uh, login text. And so Hong has heard of cases where people purposely don't use two-factor where they otherwise would because of this, because of the lack of convenience. So this means that people maybe aren't using the best security they could because it's just not practical for their situation. And so then, you know, again, you're potentially weakening your security practices. But of course, the real issue with account sharing and possibly the, you know, the worst case scenario, which no one likes to think about, is the breakup. And particularly, you know, if it's not a very amicable breakup. At that point, you likely no longer want your ex-partner to have any access to anything of yours. But revoking it could be quite difficult. And of course, depending on what they have access to, if, you know, they're going to be acting maliciously, they could do a lot of damage, you know. It could be financial if they they have access to any account that's linked to your bank cards or anything like that. It could be reputational. You know, they could um, send out a tweet from your account um, or something like that. So that is really sort of the, the, the place where things get particularly difficult. 
I wonder, does that tie back to the Pope story early on? Had the Pope shared his Instagram password with, with someone, you know, I don't know, maybe <laughs> a, a relative? I mean, there you go. Yeah, there is an example of the kind of damage that can happen if so, if you give someone else access to your account. So, you know, in this example, if the Pope gave his Instagram password to a friend and then they've had a big falling out over something to do with, you know, Catholic doctrine um, or, for instance, you know, you, you break up with your, your partner. You know, obviously there's the, the five or seven stages of grief, but there's a, there's a first stage that we should be adding on, which is password hygiene. What should we all and of course, the Pope, if he's listening, be doing uh, to protect our passwords and, you know, if, if we have a breakup. So obviously, if ever you think your password has been, been potentially compromised in any sense, you want to change it. Um, and you'd want to change any passwords that you think might be compromised or might be at risk. The issue is, obviously, we all have so many accounts and logins these days that even remembering what they are can be quite difficult. Um, And often, you know, once you've logged into a service, it might keep you logged in. So you're not even prompted each time. So this is where a password manager actually comes in really handy because it essentially acts as a list of all your accounts, which you can then easily go through and change them. Whereas if you're having to kind of scratch your head and think, oh, my gosh, what what access do they have? Did they have this login? I can't remember, you know, which shopping sites I've used or something like that then it gets quite difficult so using a password manager is a really good idea um, and can make this much easier I guess part of the problem isn't and this is something that Matt alluded to earlier is that password managers aren't necessarily conducive to like non PC or phone based services like Netflix like if I'm logging into Netflix on my, my PlayStation or whatever I'm not the password manager that I use on Google Chrome isn't accessible to me so it's like you know, either you, you kind of get your laptop and like copy across like a 16 digit, you know, string of, of, of text and numbers, or you, you set a shorter password that's easier to share. Now, and the, that's the other thing is what well, comes down to practicality. So like, obviously, we shouldn't share accounts with people, but equally, people don't want to each pay for a subscription to, you know, a thing when they don't have to. So they are going to continue sharing accounts. So if people are going to do that, is there a way to kind of make it work better for them? Yeah, I think this is the the interesting point, really, because obviously, as you say, we know, you know, you shouldn't share accounts. Everyone knows that. And there are things that individuals should do to maximize their security. But I do think this is also it's a bit of a design issue, really. You know, technology needs to be designed for people. And if it's shown again and again that people don't behave in that perfect way that we maybe assume, then you know, I think that should be taken into account. So things like uh, Netflix and Spotify having these options where you can get an account for more than one person is is very useful. And, you know, lots of people do find that. And, you know, you can save money at the same time while still, uh, you know, using it in the way it's intended to be used. Uh, So that's really helpful. I think also to your point, Amit, about, oh, I don't want to use a password manager for my Netflix password. It's worth thinking about kind of the hierarchy of your accounts and how important they are. You know, maybe some things you use a strong, unique password for, but that's enough. And maybe you'd think your Netflix is in that category. For more important things, you might think, I'm going to use a password manager for this. And for, you know, super important things, you might think, I'm going to put two-factor on this as well. So I think it's about kind of, you know, being 
realistic and practical in your security practices and being as secure as you possibly can within, you know, within what you're willing to do. So you might not be willing to use a password manager for all your passwords. That doesn't necessarily mean you should not use a password manager at all, right? You should do kind of what you can do to keep yourself as secure as possible. And those, I, you know, I would recommend all of those, obviously, to everyone to, to do. Um, in terms of what kind of tech companies can do to maybe design better for this, there are a few things aside from having the option of, of separate profiles. Um, one that Jace, Jason Hong, who I spoke to, suggested is, you know, you could get occasional notifications of um, new logins. So, you know, if you then you'd know if you'd shared your account, if someone else is logging in from a different location um, and that would help help you know who is using it and how they're using it. So you can kind of keep track or maybe you could get a summary each month of how a certain application has been used. So you could just check through almost like checking a bank statement, I guess, and see, is there anything here that I should know about how my account is being used? He also suggests that, you know, some services and apps could give you occasional notifications just to let you know they're there. Now, where this comes particularly in particularly useful is in that worst case scenario of a bad relationship or a breakup. What we are increasingly seeing, which Matt Burgess has spoken about on this podcast, is this issue of spyware. So people installing apps on their their partner's or ex-partner's phone in order to kind of surveil, monitor, control them. And he suggests that apps that offer this functionality should actually, you know, um, iOS or Android should kind of ping you once a week and say, oh, just so you know, this thing's running on your phone. And then, you know, if you put it there, if you want it there, that's fine. But if you didn't know it was there, you'd be alerted to that. Or you'd be, be reminded like, oh, yeah, actually, now we've broken up. I don't want this person to know what I'm doing or to have access to where I'm going. Um, so there are kind of suggestions of how tech can be and security can be designed to be a little more um, receptive to the reality of how people live. And obviously, I should say, you shouldn't share passwords. Can I, I say that one annoying thing we didn't touch on, which is quite minor compared compared to the issues that you just raised, Vicky, is that when someone goes on and they change your recommended stuff by listening to something that you don't like, or they go on your Netflix profile and it's like, I made you a whole profile for that. I'm not I'm not interested in Hebrew dramas. Please don't watch those on my account. <laughs> you know, just talking from my own experience here, um, <laughs> that should somehow come into this whole play. That if there are separate accounts, just use a separate account. That's why they set them up for. Yeah, so this is where the profiles, the separate profiles on things like Netflix are, uh, come in really handy, um, you know, and, you know, if people have this, if you listen to Spotify with kids and then you end up with, you know, things like Baby Shark coming up all the time, um, you know, it's good to be able to separate users from accounts. And I think that's that is sort of a nod to uh, the reality of how people use these like, oh, you know. If you if you live in a, a house of multiple people, not everyone is going to have a separate Netflix account because, you know, obviously. Um, so, yeah, it solves that issue, too. We've got a little bit of feedback this week. Uh, Matt Reynolds, some questions about COVID. 
Yeah, so Mark wrote in with two questions that I'll, that I'll tackle in turn. So his first question is, if and when a successful COVID vaccine does get rolled out to the masses, will this help those who are already infected or does it only prevent uh, 90 to 95% of people becoming infected in the first place? So this is a really, really good question. But obviously, because vaccine trials are focused on people who haven't had coronavirus, after all, that's the kind of main point of a vaccine to prevent illness in the first place, we don't really know the answer to that question. What we do know, however, is that your immunity to coronavirus and all kinds of viruses can wane wane over time and that people have been reinfected with COVID-19. So if you previously had uh, COVID-19, it still makes sense to have a vaccine as it will definitely boost your immune response. Mark has a second and final question, um, and that is, it's been mentioned that the potential long-term safety impacts of some of the vaccines have not been understood because the vaccines are so new. What might some of the negative consequences be that might show up in future based on our knowledge of other vaccine trials that have happened and have been given and we've had longer to understand or monitor them? So that's a really, really good question. And I think that a bunch of people are thinking about that. You know, you know they say they see a vaccine that is kind of new um, and, you know, they're a little bit, you know, they're a little bit worried. I think the really, really important thing to note here is that there will be side effects from these vaccines, but almost all vaccine side effects are really short-lived. So to use that Moderna vaccine, for an example, uh, the side effects include fatigue, joint pain, headache and redness at the site of injection. But all of these were experienced by less than 10% of the people who had, had the vaccine and none of them were long-lasting. So there were actually no um, serious adverse effects reported in either the Moderna or Pfizer trials. Now, it is, as I said, really important to realise there will be side effects. And because this vaccine is going to be taken by most of the population, hopefully, there will be a lot of people who experience these side effects. So we are going to hear about them and we should expect that. But what we do know from other vaccines is that the long-term side effects of vaccines are exceptionally rare. I'm talking about very serious side effects or long-term ones. And in all cases, they're significantly outweighed by the long-term consequences of contracting a disease like COVID-19. So, for, for instance, we know that there, there appear to be some vaccine-linked um, examples of a, a, a condition called Guillain-Barr syndrome, but there are about one or two per million. And we know that the rates of that disease are much higher for people that contract flu and get the disease. So we know that even if there are exceptionally rare long-term side effects, um, you know, they actually tend to occur much more often in people that have the disease, which is why we take vaccines after all. So we've got lots of reason to be confident about the safety of these vaccines, both in the short term and the long term. But it's really good to have a you know, realistic discussion of what side effects people might experience. Thanks, Matt. And we'll presumably be, presumably be getting more and more information about these vaccines. Obviously, we've only had sort of some kind of preliminary first results so far and there's lots more information and data to come so I'm sure Matt will be waiting uh, impatiently for that and we'll update us all as the story progresses thanks everyone for joining us we'll be back next week with the Wired podcast usual time do let us know if you've got any comments on this episode or any previous episodes at podcast at wired.co.uk and uh, yeah we'll be in your ears again next week Bye. Bye. Bye.